Hi there, welcome to Active Intelligence. I'm Aaron Ironside. I hope you'll spend the next half an hour or so with me as we take a look at some social issues from a variety of points of view and often ones you don't have access to in the mainstream media, balance rather than bias. Today's issue will trigger many people, so that's a warning up front as we take a look at surviving clergy abuse on Active Intelligence. On today's program, I caught up with Frances Tangaloa. She made a submission to the Royal Commission of Inquiry into Abuse and Care. Sadly, she experienced abuse at the hands of a Maris brother in the early 1970s when she was just at primary school. But we know that abuse is not simply a Catholic problem. Of course, when we think about abuse, oftentimes we think of scout leaders, sadly. Uh, also, other groups that have been touched with this issue, Dilworth College more recently, Salvation Army, you name it, really. Wherever adults and children have appeared together, sadly, this issue has appeared also. But I suppose the difference is, uh, for the Catholic Church, is just how widespread the problem has been, but also the way in which it has failed to address the issue, at times turning a blind eye, at times even promoting those who are at the center of allegations. The 449-page report found that before John Paul II elevated Theodore McCarrick to Archbishop of Washington, he already was aware of multiple allegations against McCarrick. That included reports of sexual misconduct with another priest, sharing beds with seminarians, and anonymous letters accusing him of pedophilia with his nephews. But McCarrick denied those allegations, and he rose to become one of the most powerful and well-known Catholic leaders in the United States. The investigation also found that Pope Benedict delayed an investigation into McCarrick's behavior, and that Pope Francis also did not act on allegations about McCarrick until 2017, believing that Pope John Paul II had already reviewed them. McCarrick was removed as archbishop in 2006, but wasn't defrocked, that is to say removed from the church, until 2019. You know, McCarrick was very charismatic and he was extremely winning and he was also a very gifted fundraiser who made lots of monetary gifts to other members of the church hierarchy. And the common thread in all of the authorities who failed to accurately investigate or adequately look into the allegations against McCarrick is that uh, they trusted him, they believed him, and they saw no reason to deal with what they assumed to be uh, conduct that only involved other adults, and in many cases, conduct they presumed to be long in the past. Yeah, this one has really caused some huge damage for the reputation of the Catholic Church and its ability to do its work in the world. And it would appear that several popes have struggled to really grapple with this problem and face it head on. And to the credit of the Catholic Church, they are at least seeming to do a lot more about this in positive, helpful ways than they have in the past. It's such a deeply personal story for those who've been victimized at the hands of the clergy. What would it be like to come face to face with the person who did this? Well, two men 40 years after the fact had an opportunity to confront the priest who had been the one who had abused them. This was a remarkable tale of forgiveness and unforgiveness and of how incredibly difficult it is to get resolution at a personal level. Take a look. Nearly four decades ago here in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, Koharchik was teaching and coaching sports at a Catholic grade school. Is this around the age the abuse began? Yeah. 
That's when he took an interest in a pair of 10-year-old friends, Sean Doherty and Brian Sabo. This is the first time you're talking about your story publicly. Mm -hmm. What's the process that got you to this point? Um, I think just the support of family, my wife, just constantly reassuring me. I haven't done anything wrong. We were confused. I mean, he's the priest. Not that any other adults at your age would bathe you in a shower, but he did it like in a joking way. Like, oh, let me get your bag, you know. So, I mean, there's certain things that you just keep private. But they wanted everything to be public now, as they contacted Koharchik to arrange a sit-down. What does he hope to gain from meeting Sean and I after all these years? I hope it's not to ask for forgiveness. You know, I don't think his soul could be saved now. Is there any part of you that forgives him? Uh, no. I forgive him. If he's willing to... You forgive him? I've forgiven him a long time ago. Is that for you or is that for him? I think both. It, uh... I think tonight is for me. How you doing? Have a seat. As they met face to face with the admitted child abuser, both had plenty of questions. At any point, when you first started having those feelings, did you feel like, should I talk to someone or? And that's not the sort of thing where you're going to call the bishop up and say, no, um, anything about it because that is that's good. Thank you. Then you run the risk of, you know, being, um, was there something else about Sean and I that made us a target? Well, it was a familiarity, maybe. You were close or involved in, in the things that were going on with the church. Is this something that you would have confessed in a confessional? Oh, I have. I'm but Do you think that's forgiven you? But Koharchik claimed he didn't know who in the church may have been aware of his behavior. You didn't get transferred for sexually abusing kids? I don't think so. I felt like there was a lot of dancing. Um, a lot of dancing, filling out. He just would not admit that there's any kind of cover-up at all. How are you feeling? Uh, good. Yeah, that was hard. That was really hard. <laughs> I came here not knowing what to expect, but when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'm going to feel really glad I did this. Relieved? Yeah. I got a lot off my chest that I never thought that I'd get off my chest. I mean, I just successfully met with the guy that abused me and got to say everything that I wanted to say to him. He got it off my chest, and I'm at peace right now. I'm completely at peace. 
I can't imagine what it was like to be in that conversation, firstly for the survivors 40 years after the fact, but even for uh, the priest himself uh, to be confronted uh, with the reality of what it is you've done and the pain that you have caused and the harm uh, that it has done to others. But unfortunately, uh, it's the kind of pain that needs to be embraced if we're ever going to have any genuine healing and forgiveness. And I was glad to see that both survivors had more of a sense of peace uh, about what had happened to them as a result of having that particular type of conversation. Of course, for most people, they'll never get to speak uh, to the clergy person who was the one that caused them so much pain. But Francis Tangaloa was given an opportunity uh, nearly 50 years after the fact to uh, confront and to address the Royal Commission of Inquiry about abuse and care, about her experience, an experience that, well, started for her right back when she was a small child in primary school in the early 1970s. And um, I've since found out that he actually abused a number of other little girls as well. So really horrific. Uh, I just, you know, looking back on it, it almost seems like a, a nightmare that happened to someone else. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's almost just surreal to think um, that it happened to me. Um, but of course, I've had to live with the repercussions of that abuse over my lifetime. And, and so being a part of the Royal Commission has helped me to, I think, advocate for other survivors, but also to call on the Catholic Church to be able to address these issues of abuse, to be able to really um, take action that would be transformational change. The Royal Commission, one of their uh, uh, purposes is for transformational change, and I really love how they say that because I think that's what's really needed. Um, but I do want to say at the outset that I haven't got anything specific against the Catholic Church at all. Um, I believe that you know they do good work and God can continue to use them, but this is a huge area that is preventing them from doing what God wants them to do. And that's why I am speaking out, because I really do want to see transformational change in the Catholic Church. When we think about this idea of speaking out, what did you do at age five to seven whilst this was happening? Did you ever talk to anybody about what was going on? No, no, talked to no one. Didn't say anything about what was going on. Didn't know, you know, he was the teacher, a teacher, um, and an adult, and I was a child. So, you know, any abuse victim probably tells you, you just do, you just do what you need to do to survive. And that's what I did. Um, so, no, no one else knew. And I didn't talk about it. I wasn't able, actually, through most of my life, I didn't remember the abuse. I, they, it was repressed. And it wasn't actually until I after becoming a Christian, coming to know the Lord, that um, those memories started to come back and started to really um, cause issues for me, you know, because suddenly I'm remembering this trauma that happened to me. And, um, you know, that's quite, you know, it's PTSD, you know, some of the victims of PTSD will tell you, you know, when you have those flashbacks, so traumatic and so I had to work out how to deal with that I was an adult at this stage at university um, so 
thankfully I had support in the Christian group that I was involved with. I was involved with Student Life um, and Athletes in Action at Auckland University and they their mentoring discipleship program was so supportive, helped me to get counselling, to have the support to work through the trauma of what happened. Unfortunately, a lot of times when people do finally come and, and explain their story and say what's happened, particularly if it's historic, there are those who just struggle to believe, who really can't imagine that that did happen or could have happened. Did you encounter any of those kinds of people in your story? Um, not initially, no, not initially. Um, I think I didn't, I told only a maybe two people when I was at university. It wasn't a large group, but they were both very, very supportive um, and helped me as they mentored me through that time. But then I still wasn't able to really tell anyone else until quite a few years later. I told my husband-to-be, my husband now, Timo, um, before we got married because I wasn't sure how... Uh, the abuse would affect my marriage, you know, and I wanted him to be know what was happening, you know, and um, and he's been hugely supportive. But when I started to tell my story, maybe more recently, uh, you know, there's been a few people um, that doubt or don't quite understand, you know why I would want to take a stand and tell my story. Um, and so that's been, that's been difficult. Uh, I mean, up to, I, I, went, I um, was at the hearing in November for the Royal Commission of Inquiry and gave my evidence to them to add to their investigations. And all my family and, and I would say extended family at that time were really, really supportive. Couldn't be more supportive. It was wonderful. Um, but there have been others since then, um, since becoming a bit more public, that have not quite been as supportive. Um, and, but also other victims of the same abuser have, have come forward in that time as well. Um, it's interesting that the average um, person that's come to the Royal Commission, it's it's often taken them 20, 30 years to be able to talk about the abuse, um, which is, you know, people think, well, you're abused, you should be able to, you know, tell people, you should be able to tell someone to get help. But actually, especially very traumatic abuse, you can often not tell anyone. It's so traumatic. Um, so, and that was the case with me and with so many of the witnesses that have given evidence. You mentioned that the events of childhood changed you. You had to carry that pain with you right through into adult life. In what ways did it change you? Um, I, even though I couldn't remember the abuse through my life, I became a very, I was a very angry teenager and young adult. And, you know, I couldn't, I don't know why, you know, I remember thinking, I don't know why I'm so angry, but I'm angry, you know, and it didn't matter what it was, I was angry about it. And people who knew me in my early years at university would, you know, they would be able to see that a little bit anger was often just under the surface. And, um, and it's hard to explain how intense that anger is. And it just is so 
um, it's right there under the surface, hard to deal with too. You know, you just don't know when the anger is going to surface. Also, um, just the self um, confidence had no self confidence, no. Um, yeah, I just didn't like who I was. In fact, I hated who I was. And I know growing up as a teenager, um, that was a huge issue for me. Didn't like where I come from, didn't like who I was becoming. You know, there was a lot of self-hate in there that um, I had to work on over the years. Um, and there was, and just also mistrust of people. Um, I was only a young child when I was abused, so that trust of adults was broken quite young so I was very suspicious and have naturally been suspicious most of my life of people but especially men um you know so I had to work through that and and anger towards men as well you know I just had to work through that so a lot of areas that it affects you mentioned coming to faith and how important that was for you and the counselling that followed. Oftentimes in faith environments, we're encouraged to forgive those who've hurt us, something that's way easier said than done. Tell us about the forgiveness journey. I think um, the forgiveness journey started with accepting Christ. I, I think that had to happen first for me. It was only when... I started to understand how much Jesus loved me. And no matter who I was or what I'd done or where I'd come from or what had happened in my life, um, hearing that Jesus loved me no matter what was a huge turning point in my life because uh, not only had I come from some challenging background, but I just hated who I was. So, you know, it blew me away that, God, the almighty God, loved me. And I, I didn't love me, but God loved me. And I just thought, I want to know this God who loves me so much. And then that helped me because understanding God loved me and accepted me helped me to accept myself. And it took a while. It took a you know journey, um, and that wasn't perfect, but... Uh, a, a part of accepting the abuse as well was accepting um, that God loved me, even with that abuse, even with that hurt, that damage, that injury in my life. God loved me, even with that. And so uh, even as a believer, understanding that and knowing that God loves me and he wants to heal me and he wants me to be become the per best person that I can be has been a huge, uh, yeah, just um, so important in my life. Um, Philippians 4.13 is my life verse. Um, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. And I truly believe that, that that's a part of um, being a Christian, as Christ is in me, I can do it. I can get through this abuse. I can get through this damage, this hurt, um, this pain, and I can heal because Jesus heals me and, and can heal me. Um, and a part of that healing process was forgiving my abuser. And that was hard. It didn't come immediately. You know, just because I was a believer didn't mean I instantly forgave him you know I had to work at that and I had to think about it and even sometimes today I have to 
I have to work on that. You know, something happens, I find out another person who was a little girl was abused by him. You know, immediately I get angry about that, you know, and I, I, you know, it's just a natural tendency. But I also think justice is also a God-given um, trait that God wants us to be just people and to seek justice. So there's a there's a there's a thin line between seeking justice and being and un, being unforgiving. You know, and I, I think I have I've had to learn to walk that line. And there are moments when I I have to catch myself. You know, being angry at this perpetrator is that being unforgiving or anger, or is it being a just anger? You know, and I, and I think that's important to, to you know, be reviewing those from time to time to be sure that I'm seeking a just anger to do what is right in God's eyes and not to continue not to forgive him. Many victims in your situation would hate God for allowing it, would hate the church because the man who did it was a representative of God, and yet you've managed to hold on to your faith, but I'm sure you can understand what damage that's done, not just to the emotional part of a person, but also their willingness to be open to spiritual things. And you now work in a Christian ministry environment, and so the things of the Christian faith are very important to you. How have you wrestled with the fact that this was one of God's representatives who did this to you? Yeah, that was, I, I guess I never saw him as God's representative. So that kind of helped, you know. I always saw him as a perpetrator, as an abuser. Um, that helped. However, I did see the church that he worked for as God's church, as part of God's, the family of God. And so that's been harder for me to work through that, this church that God has been working in and through is not dealing with abuse as well as it can do. And that's really why I got involved with the Royal Commission. That and also um, the fact that there were so many others that were spiritually abused, and I call it spiritual abuse, who have been uh, in a clergy position and have abused children or vulnerable adults. Um, and and I and I've heard some of these stories and it just breaks my heart that because of that spiritual abuse they've turned against God. You know, God didn't do that. But because of the position they had, they've abused that um, you know, that opportunity that they had to know God. They and and I'm I'm reminded of you know when Jesus went to the temple and he got angry and he he turned up the tables in the market in the temple, you know and I that story just reminds me of how much I feel Jesus was saying this is not what God's church is about. We should not be putting obstacles in the way of people coming to know God. We should be helping them to come to know God, helping them to give, go to a place of worship. And that was, that really um, made me come forward. And actually one of the witnesses who gave his evidence in the first hearing, he just broke my heart when at the hearing, he actually said to the council for the Catholic Church that he was happy 
to not go to their heaven. You know, he was happy to go to hell. And I just thought, oh, do you know what you're saying? You know, I just, and I just, it just broke my heart. I just thought, oh, you know, people not hearing that there's actually another way to heal. There's actually another, there is a God who can help heal survivors of abuse. There is a God that is not what's represented in some of these abuse cases. We know the Catholic Church has done a terrible job of dealing with this issue. They've hidden the issue. They've moved priests and brothers from one town to another. They've failed to report things to the police. They've uh, hushed up the problem. None of those things have worked. They've only made the problem a lot larger and perhaps uh, irreparable in the damage it's done to the reputation of the church. In 2021, what can the Catholic Church do for someone like yourself, a survivor, that would actually be meaningful? I would love to see the Catholic Church put survivors ahead of their perpetrators and do what is right. I, this is one area that I just think the Catholic Church has not been able to do uh, well. They, they honestly are not putting... Um, survivors ahead of perpetrators and we saw that in the evidence that Miss C.U. gave in the latest Pacifica hearing with the Royal Commission Her, she was an aunt of, of a, a child a 15 year old girl who was abused uh, by a priest in 2017 so this is only 2017, 2018, this is only three or four years ago um, this is, so this is very present. And we heard, again, the same story, that she went to the bishop, she went to the Catholic Church with the issue. She did what was right to go to them first and bring up this issue. And they, and what did they do in response? They gave the priest a QC that they paid for to help defend um, the offences that the police, and, and actually the offences got, he got charged with a lesser, lesser charges because of great, you know, with very good counsel that he had, funded by the Catholic Church. What support did they give the victim? Not much at all. She didn't get counselling. She didn't get a Queen's Council for sure. And she didn't get any other support around her. Uh, and in fact, she's had to go move overseas back to Tonga for her own safety and for her own growth and protection. So I just feel like there's so much that can happen in the Catholic Church. I also feel in their beliefs, I feel the vow of celibacy is problematic should be removed and instead there should be a voluntary celibacy um, I just feel that's one of the biggest areas that they can change um, I also in my submission talked about having more women in leadership including women priests and brothers I think this would have um, this would help reduce the numbers for sure and there's sort of an inbuilt accountability there um, I think Sex abuse at the moment in the Catholic Church, it, it's framed as a breach of celibacy, but it needs to be reframed as a crime. Um, and I also think that if a, if a complaint of sexual abuse is upheld, 
then the perpetrator needs to be removed immediately, not just moved on. You mentioned that sometimes they're just moved on from place to place. They still struggle to remove any perpetrator of abuse. And we know this today. Um, We know of cases even um, like in the last three years as with Mr. Yu's case, um, where they're still struggling to remove the clergy involved in abuse cases. And lastly, I think there should be mandatory reporting. It should be required of the Catholic Church, just like any other organisation that works with children. Frances has such a gracious attitude, uh, and it's clear that she has gone on quite the journey of, of healing for herself, but is adamant, of course, that the Catholic Church needs to learn its lesson, as indeed the Church in the wider context needs to as well. That The reality is uh, that we have to take more care and responsibility over that duty of care uh, towards children. And sadly, we no longer live in a world where we can just trust the adults to do the right thing. Of course, for the church, uh, this has been hugely problematic, not just uh, in terms of this issue, but its wider cultural implications. That sadly, when we do think of child abuse, scout leaders and priests are kind of two of the stereotypes that come to mind. And that's painful because there are many good scout leaders and many great Catholic clergy. I went to a Catholic high school and had some wonderful experiences, some great friendships with Maris brothers, with Franciscan friars, and, and found them to be very generous, loving, and godly people. Uh, Of course, I also was aware that even in that context, some of those brothers were doing the very painful things that we're talking about uh, today. And so we need to root out the problem, but also recognize that the credibility of the church has been greatly damaged by this. And it takes a long time to restore trust. When trust is broken at this systemic macro community level, it's going to take a generation or more really to rebuild that trust and we can't rush that. What I've noticed often in life is that when someone has a change of heart like the Catholic Church and decides you know what we're going to do way better at this we're going to be far more vigilant and we promise that we'll try and make sure this never happens again the person making the change is always far more convinced that the change is real and genuine and going to be long term than the person who has been hurt or has had that trust broken. They take a lot longer to believe it. You see, talk is cheap, but trust is restored through consistent, reliable action. And I think the lesson today is to realize for the church community, if we want the community at large to really believe that the church community has something useful and helpful to offer, and that it isn't just full of hypocrisy and abuse, we're going to have to play the long game. But that begins today by committing to, as best as we're able, offering that consistent and reliable behavior that restores the trust in our community. Because the community needs the church, it needs hope, it needs the service and care and compassion that the church is known for, and it provides when it's at its best. Unfortunately, at its worst, it has damaged the trust of our culture. And in a world where, unfortunately, people are so resistant to things of faith and the values that undergird faith, we are throwing out the baby with the bathwater. But in a sense, we can understand why that would happen. We are the authors of a lot of this pain. But the good news is, we get to be the author of the change and the progress as well. 
Love to hear your story about change, about healing, about forgiveness. Please get in touch. The website is activeintelligence.nz and you can hit that subscribe button and every episode will come into your inbox every week. We'll see you next time on Active Intelligence.